Well, good morning, everybody. Good, morning. good to see you this morning. I'm Ed Glaze, one of the pastors here. And whether if you're worshiping with us here in person or online, we're grateful that you are here today uh, to hear some good news and to hear how God is working in our lives and in our world. As we conclude this series on this fellow named David, as it says, a man after God's own heart. And so, as I did at the early service, let's just relive David's life a little bit because, believe it or not, some of y'all have not been here every Sunday, okay? You know, imagine that, not here every Sunday. I, I may have tuned in online, but you may have missed something. So, let's just kind of rehash this life of David because it's a, some of it's familiar. Some of it, I've heard so many people say, I had never heard that before about David. And believe it or not, it's all been true. So let, let, let's, let's talk about him just a minute. Of course, we started out, uh, David, this run of the litter, this youngest son of Jesse, and, and he was being chosen by God uh, to be the king, but no one recognized him. I mean, when Samuel came to anoint the next king, all these other boys came out, but his dad even forgot about him. And Samuel said, is, is uh, this all your sons? And and Jesse said, oh, yeah, that guy, yeah, yeah, he, he's out tending to the sheep. Some of us may have felt that way, particularly if you're the youngest child out there. You've had to sit uh, with all the other uh, young people, all the big folks sat at the, at the big table. Yeah, you, you might have felt like that, left out a little bit. Well, then David's anointed, and we hear the most famous story about David. Everyone knows about David and Thank you. Yes, you all know that story and what a victory that was. And of course, David's acclaimed all over the countryside. Everybody knows who David is. I mean, it's like everybody knows who Tom Hanks is. I mean, everybody in Israel knew about David. He was this big hero. Of course, the king gets jealous and David, for a time, has to flee out into the wilderness. And it's in this wilderness experience that David is formed and, and it, his faith is strengthened. And we believe that uh, he wrote many of the Psalms while out there in that wilderness. And while there, he, we remember the story, we encounter this lady named Abigail. Now, this is one that people hadn't heard a lot about. Uh, he, Abigail is the lady that kept David out of trouble. And I've heard so many husbands after that sermon saying, you know, my wife's an Abigail, you know. I, I'll start to get angry and frustrated about something, and I'm about to yell something out and... and the woman would say, after that sermon, I heard several of y'all say this, I'm Abigail, better watch it there, bud. And it just reminds us, right, that, that you know, uh, we have people in our lives that God provides that if we listen to him or her, uh, they keep us out of, out of harm's way, keep us out of trouble if we'll listen uh, to that sage wisdom. And then uh, we, we got into some of the earthy stuff of David, because all this seems so positive. In fact, everyone said, didn't David do anything wrong? Oh, yeah, he did something wrong. Yeah, oh, yeah, you bet he did. And we go into that terrible story of David committing adultery, David committing murder, David sinning greatly. And we all realize in our own lives, as we'll talk about here, that we all sin, we all blow it. We all need forgiveness. And then last week you heard Patty Patty beautifully unpack uh, this great grief that David had at the loss of his son Absalom and how he grieved deeply uh, this young boy dying. And so today, 
we come to the end of the, the David story. And as I just said, David is a pretty complicated person, right? David was formed by the brutal nature of those, that ancient culture of the day. I mean, he, he thought nothing of killing those who were his enemies. David was someone who had committed adultery, committed murder. David was someone that could be jealous. David was someone that could easily get angry. But also we know, and why we're looking at David, is that he was a capable leader, brave warrior, a true friend. Someone who was heart-led by what he did. We see this in the great grief that he has over losing his friend, Jonathan and his son Absalom over the quickness that he would try to pursue justice and because he felt that it impinged upon the heart of God. And of course, we see this most notably as we read through the book of the Psalms. History tells us or tradition tells us that David probably wrote 75 of these Psalms. These words that come to us from so long ago are still so applicable today. But the Dead Sea Scrolls make this claim that David wrote 3,600 psalms and wrote 360 songs to be sung each and every day. David, you see, was a heartfelt person, a person that, as we've talked about from the very beginning, described after God's own heart, the only person throughout all of Scripture that is described in this manner, in this way, a person after God's own heart. So this heart-led fellow is someone indeed that we should study, indeed we should learn from, whose life is failed and flawed as it was, is still somebody that can help us be faithful in our living. Because I like the way John Calvin, the great theologian from the Reformation, whose theology I disagree with a whole lot, but he still has good things to say, he said this, he said, David is a mirror of our lives showing the constant course of God's grace. I love that. Showing the constant course, a mirror for our own lives, showing the constant course of God's grace. So today, we close out our series by looking at the last words of David, how they are a great alleluia, as I said in the, te- in the title, alleluia anyway. So let us look at these last words of David, and then we'll unpack some more, not only these words, but the entirety of his life, because, well, this has been a, a series that so many have related to, because, well, we're a lot like David, right? Here now the last words of David. The oracle of David, son of Jesse, the oracle of the man whom God exalted, the anointed of God, the anointed of Jacob, the strong and favored one of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks to me through me. His word is upon my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, one who rules over people justly, ruling in the fear of God, is like the light of morning, like the sun rising on a cloudless morning, gleaming from the rain on the grassy land. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. There was a time when people really paid attention to the last words uh, of folks. They would gather around the bedside. They would want to hear what this person said, the last words, uh, maybe as an epitaph uh, to their lives. I think about our, their own 
founder of our denomination of, of Methodism, John Wesley, who after going out on a cold February to collect food from the poor at the age of 88, contracted pneumonia, was bedridden and facing death. And as people gathered around him, he said these words, his last words, best of all, God is with us. Best of all, God is with us. And then he bid farewell. I mean, how wonderful is that? The last words of this great person, this great follower of Jesus Christ. Best of all, God is with us. Confederate general and also ardent Christian Stonewall Jackson, after being wounded and being laying in bed for several weeks, was talking senselessly for, for a while, but then it seemed that he got a clarity of mind and said these things with his dying breath. Let us cross over the river and rest in the shade of the trees. Wow. Words like that we recall, we remember. Words like that we can hold on to. And so here we are listening to the, the last words of David. And we are seeing how in the midst of everything and all that has gone on, he utters hallelujah anyway. The background for his last words, though, follow after what da this part in Samuel says, these are the last words of David, and then there's a lot more written about David. Usually when you think about somebody having their last words, he uttered his last words, and that was it, hallelujah, amen, or that was his last thing you hear about him. No, no. Somehow the writers say these last words of David, give it this oracle, these is what, what he said at his last, and then there's several chapters about what David did, and all of it is not good. Right after this, he decides, you know what, I want to see how strong I am. I want to see how big our army is. I want to see how great I am. And so he orders this census of the fighting men of Israel. Some of his counselors try to talk him out. and say, why are you doing this? Why do you need to do that? What, you know, what's this all about? And, you know, there's all sorts of reasoning given about that. But I like to think that he's wanting to say, you know, I'm a pretty powerful dude here. I got me, I got me a big army, and I'm going to show how big that army is. And so he orders a census, and, and what he is doing, it seems like, is displeasing to God. He's showing that he's relying on his own power, his own might, his, his own skill rather than on God. And then we follow along at the start of 1 Kings. I mean, David's still alive and kicking, but at 1 Kings... Uh, we start to read about his decline in health. In fact, it says that he's bedridden. And so to be his nurse, they bring in, as my Old Testament professor said, Miss Israel, this beautiful woman, Abshag the Shuamite. And she is his nurse, tending to him. And, and he's, you know, weak and frail and, and can't get out of bed. And yet, even from his bed, he is trying to manipulate things, and he's trying to take revenge. He orders, as it is in the ancient times, revenge upon people who had, had done him wrong. Even his faithful general, Joab, he says, make sure that guy's dead. He, he, he also sends out people to kill Shimei, who had cursed him when, during the revolt of Absalom. And then he tries to manipulate all the intrigue of his own household. There's one son that wants to be king, but he, he doesn't, David doesn't want him to be king. He wants Solomon to be king. And so in the midst of all this mess, on his deathbed, he gives his last words as he dies. Hallelujah. Anyway. Hallelujah. Anyway. How can David do that? Because, as John Calvin said, his life 
mirrors our lives. And if we look closely, we see the continuity and the course of God's grace working. Think about David's life. Think about our own life. You know, starting with, with David, as I said, a young boy, maybe forgotten about. He was forgotten about. I mean, he was sent out in the fields to keep the sheep. Maybe some of us grew up that way. You know, we were the youngest or we didn't feel like we had any skills or people ran us down. And, you know, we, we were folks that, well, maybe we thought we didn't count. And then somehow there's an anointing. I don't know what that could be. For, for some people, it might be that they're good athletes, that, that skills started to blossom as they became a teenager. It might be a musician. Uh, for me, it was being in Boy Scouts. I mean, the Scouts helped me gain confidence in uh, who I was. And there's that anointing that you find who you are, like David being anointed king, finding out his true purpose and what he was in life. And then as happens to us sometimes, there's like David, a time in the wilderness after we begin to get our feet on the ground and we, we head off on our own, might have been gone off to college, might be in the workforce, might join the army or something, and we find ourselves maybe struggling a little bit. Thought we had our feet firmly planted and then, you know, we start to get older and life begins to change. Then, though, like David, something happens. And we begin to find ourselves, we get our stride, we get married, we have kids, we have that great job. Everything seems to be going great. You know, we wish life would stay this way all along, like David being the king who was reigning over everybody, all the enemies were conquered, and he thought everything was going just right. And then tragedy strikes. It might be like with David, it was his own sinfulness. It might be some betrayal in your own life. It might be some sort of heartache that is caused by someone else who did something wrong. Who knows? But it's there. It happens. And then we might experience a tragedy, a death of someone close to us. And we go into lament in the morning like David did with Jonathan and then later on with his own son. And this glorious life that we thought we were creating and weaving, well... There's some darkness there, some hardship. So how in the midst of it can we, like David, say hallelujah anyway, even to the end? Even to the end, how can we say hallelujah anyway? I like the way Eugene Peterson puts it with David. He said, first and foremost with David, wasn't David, it was God. He believed in God, imagined God, thought about God, approached God, prayed to God. God was his everything. It wasn't about David. It was about God. It wasn't about David. It was about God. And throughout his life, through the ups and the downs and the trials and the tribulations, God was there. He acknowledged God and prayed to God. As I said, half the Psalms in the Psalter are written by David. And we hear words like this first upon David's lips. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. O Lord, I love you because you are the strength of my life. O Lord, my God, you are like a flowing fountain in my life. And of course, most famously of all, the Lord is my shepherd. Thank you. At least a couple of y'all awake. 
You wake up there on, on, the, on the screen, the Lord is my shepherd. See, it was all about God for David throughout his life. All about God. He's trying to put God first. And through that, he was able to paint a beautiful paint, picture of who his life was on the canvas of his life, even during the bad times. Reminds me of something I read just not too long ago about my wife's cousin, Judge, Federal Judge Keith Watkins, who recently had a portrait dedicated to him in the Roy Johnson Courthouse in downtown Montgomery. Of course, you all probably know about Judge Johnson. Johnson was the, the attorney and the, the judge that all the cases for the civil rights movement during the 60s were brought before. And because of his heroism and his Christ-likeness, well, our country's different. And there's a courthouse named for him in downtown Montgomery. Well, Keith Watkins is a similar Christ follower. And so hundreds gathered as they dedicated this portrait of, of Keith Watkins, my wife's cousin, there in that courthouse. And, and many were there to pay tribute to him. Some of his former law, law clerks who were there to witness his 4,000 cases were there. One of them was Laura Wright, and she said this. Thinking about this portrait that was hanging there in that courthouse, said this. She said, she said, you know, the way we live our lives daily, the choices that we make each and every day are the painting on the canvas of our lives, the brushstroke of the canvas of our lives, and how we live our life day by day. That determines how our painting, the paintings of our lives will work, will look. David, throughout his life, tried to let the brushstroke of grace be upon the canvas of his life. Oh, yeah, we know he failed. We know it wasn't perfect, but on behind all of that was this confidence that God was at work, creating something beautiful out of who he was. How many times have we let God color our lives, the canvas of who we are, with his grace and with his love? And though sometimes, like David, we fail, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Sometimes we let our own interests, our own greed, our own lust, our own uh, seeking after power. We have to know that somehow there's this grace that is there. And to grow in confidence in that grace, we, like David, need to do the things that keep us mindful of God, imagining God, thinking of God, believing in God, approaching God, praying to God. Are we doing those things regularly so that we, like the Apostle Paul says in, in Romans 8, your spirit is spoken to by God's spirit remind you that you're a children of God and to become more aware and more tuned to that voice we've got to do like you do with anybody you got to relate you got to be in conversation so like David what are we doing to keep us attuned to God are we reading the scriptures are we looking at holy works that keep us mindful of who God is or when we go out in this beautiful world are we like I heard out on the gathering of the lawn from those brilliant young people who went hiking on the wilderness trail, are we making ourselves aware that we are surrounded with the grandeur of God? What are we doing to keep us attuned to God? 
so that we are confident in God and that our lives are a beautiful portrait of who God intends us to be. Hmm. That's how David could say hallelujah, even as he blew it, even as he blew it. We know that David several times is chastised by God for his actions. Of course, there's the Bathsheba story. I mean, we all know about that one and how he committed adultery with Bathsheba, how he committed murder uh, to Uriah. But he also was chastised for God by, by taking that census, not that God's against census workers. So don't, don't, you know, don't worry about that if you're, if you're out there uh, ever seeing somebody count for the United States government. That's not what it's about. But at the end of both of those accounts where he has sinned against God, he is quick to acknowledge his sinfulness. At the end of the, that story about the census, he, he approaches the angel and said, it is I who have sinned. I take the blame for what has happened here. No one else. Of course, in the story of Bathsheba, we see after being confronted by Nathan, David pins one of his most famous psalms, Psalm 51. He said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Blot out my iniquity. Take away my sinfulness. For against you, you only have I sinned and done that which is evil in thy sight. You see, David was honest with God. He was honest with who he was before God. He was honest that I have sinned. I have blown it. I have done the, the opposite of what you would have me to do. He was honest you see, with a sinfulness. And hear this word, honesty before God leads to confidence with God. Honesty before God leads to confidence with God. For y'all, if we are honest with God about everything, but right now we're talking about our sinfulness, Guess what? God is merciful and just, as Psalm 103 says. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That grace that I talked to you about earlier is there surrounding us. And in our acknowledgement of our waywardness, well, we make room for that grace to come. Grace for God to paint over the mistakes of our lives. That same story I was reading about my wife's cousin, I mean, that's what per perked my ear eyes up. I said, that's Alicia's cousin. You know, there are, there are some good folks in her side of the family. Uh, <laughs> she's not here, I can say that, right? Uh, so, uh, yeah, she, there's a common uh, commentator about that named Jay Wolf. He's a, a retired pastor from First Baptist in, in Montgomery. And he said, you know, I saw Keith's life and I see that Christ likeness in it, but it, and seeing the picture, but it reminds me too that there are mistakes in everybody's life. And he goes on to share about this uh, phrase from Italian art where a portrait painter would paint uh, some patron and the patron would see it and say, well, I don't, my nose ain't that big and my ears aren't really flapping out that far. I mean, I have more hair than that guy painted on me. 
And so they get another artist to repaint over that to make it maybe a little more flattering, with more hair maybe, and that's not gray hair, you know, um, those type things. Shrink the ears somewhat. And, and that artist uh, is, does what's called a pentamantio, which means to paint over. Paint over. And that's what David is having God do with his life when he acknowledges his own sinfulness, his own struggles, his own waywardness. God, the great portrait painters, painting over the blemishes of David's life with the brushstrokes of his grace. That happens, y'all, when we are honest and acknowledging that God, I blew it. I did it again. Paint over this sin-filled portrait with your grace. I like that, don't you? But David was not only just honest with his sinfulness, he was honest about everything. And how many of us have cried out in the darkness of night, oh God, I'm so frustrated by this, I'm so worried about that. God, you know, things that are concerning me about my, my family, my children, my own health. God, I, I've got to be totally honest with you. And, and what happens then? Well, we make room for grace to recreate, remake, give us a new perspective about all that we are dealing with at that moment. Maybe in the midst of that to say, hallelujah. Anyway, hallelujah. Anyway, that's what David did. Psalm 22 is famous. It really is, at least the very first words of it, because they are the, first, the words that are uttered by Jesus on the cross. You know them if you've been in church long enough. It starts out this way. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I can't help but quote the King James when I hear that. Why have you forsaken me, God? And then, get, then it goes on to, uh, to say, in the depths of the night I cry and it seems like there is no one there. My pain is ever before me. David, you see, wrote this psalm. He wrote these words that Christ quoted on the cross. And scholars don't give us a clue really when David wrote this psalm, but I think, I believe that these were written near the end of David's life. Maybe he had Abshag there writing down the words for him because he says things like, I'm forgotten about. No one cares about me anymore. Those are the thoughts of so many people as they are facing death's door, lying there in a hospital bed or a lonely bed in their, in their homes or in a nursing home or assisted living. Everyone's forgotten about me. Maybe David wrote these words, acknowledging his true feelings before God, how it felt to lay dying. But it's interesting to note, because we hear the first few words of the psalm, and well, it's all sadness, it's all gloom, it's all about, you know, my bones are being exposed by others, the bulls of Bashan are there, they're yelling at me, I mean, it's just gloom and doom, but then we get there near the end. And these words 
or what David ends with. Here they are on the screen. For he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him. Earlier in the psalm, he said, no one's hearing him. But now he realizes he is being heard. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vow I'll pay before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. To him indeed shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. And I shall live for him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. And proclaim his deliverance of people yet unborn. Saying he has done it. Wow. My God, my God, why has I forsaken me to this at the end where he's proclaiming that the posterity, the future generations are going to be able to declare the goodness of God? How did that happen? Because throughout all of his life, in those times when he is up to when he is down, he was able to give glory to God, to stay connected to God, to think about God, believe in God, Pray to God all his life. And there at the end, even when he's saying, God, this stinks. I can't tend to myself. I'm having abshagged having to do everything. He said, hallelujah, anyway. My mom is 98 years old. 98 years old. That means my wife may have to put up with me for a long time. <laughs> or she might shoot me first. Who knows? Anyway, she, maybe, you know. But my mom is a, a beautiful, wonderful woman. Even though now she's in a nursing home in that same Troy, Alabama, where Keith Watkins is originally from. Mom grew up. Uh, in Callaway, Virginia. She was born actually in Abington, and she attended the Highland United Methodist Church uh, as she was growing up. Actually, it was at Highland Methodist Church back in the day, and she was baptized there. She was confirmed there. Uh, she grew up in that congregation, follower of Jesus Christ. She uh, married a man who was an Air Force chaplain, so they traveled all over the world, but when my dad retired, not liking cold weather, I wonder where, that, where I get that from, he stayed down in what I say is Mary Esther, Florida. Normally I say Fort Walton Beach, but you, uh, Mary Esther is the real town. When I was just a young kid, one of the reasons they bought the house that they did, besides the fact that my dad was cheap and wanted to buy it for cash, was the fact that it was two blocks from the Mary Esther United Methodist Church. And we could walk to church where my mom taught first grade Sunday school for a long, long time. She'd get a star on your crown for doing that. She was one that participated in all the bake sales and all the uh, covered dish dinners and my mom was famous for pecan pie, and whenever she made a pecan pie and, and it was at the covered dish dinner, lots of folks would skip dinner first because they wanted to make sure they got a piece of Miss Nancy's pecan pie before they got the dinner because it was going to go quickly, and it always, she had to bake several of them for the bake sales because people, they would sell very quickly. 
She was a part of her United Methodist Women's Circle, which did much good for the poor and the needy, not only in that area, but around the world. And I remember waking up several mornings, and there was my mom uh, early in the morning doing a devotional. And then at breakfast time, doesn't matter if we were running late or not, which oftentimes this little boy was, we had to sit down at the table, and she and dad did the devotion out of the upper room every day, every day sitting around that table. Well, my mom's 98 now. She has vascular dementia now. She's having to be tended to by others now in that nursing home. But she has remained her sweet self the whole time. I can't call her anymore, which I hate, because, you know, the conversations, well, she can't carry on too much one on the phone anyway, but her conversations, will they get sometimes a little crazy. Like she loves to watch Bonanza. Because there's three sons on there, and whenever it comes on, she says, there's my boys. That means my middle brother's Haas. Oh, boy, do we dog him about that. But in the midst of all of that, here's what she says every time someone does something for her, and every time one of her helpers is about to go off the shift, she kisses her, that lady's hand, and she says, Thank you. Hallelujah, anyway. Hallelujah, anyway. Where'd that come from? Because mom is living out what she lived out all the days of her life. She put God first. She tended to her relationship with Christ. And in the end, there in that room, with her legs as skinny as my my pinky, she says, thank you, hallelujah, anyway. When the course of our lives are run, what will the brushstrokes on the canvas of our lives look like? Will we let the master painter paint his grace upon the canvas of our lives? Will the last stroke of the brush be grace-filled and be tinged with the brushstroke that says, hallelujah? May it be so. As we live right now for him, may it stretch through the entirety of our lives to the very end. May it be so for you and for me. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us pray. We come before you, God, knowing that we, like David, are complicated people. We sometimes sin greatly. Sometimes we are confused. Sometimes, God, we are lamenting, but God, we pray like David, our heart will be attuned to you and that we can see the course of grace running through our lives, throughout our lives, so that at the end, as we have stayed connected to you from the earliest days of our our lives here on earth, at the end, we can say thank you and we can say hallelujah. May our lives right now Reflect the course of the angels that sing hallelujah throughout eternity. May our lives 
sing those words as well. Now, Father, let's go from here, living for you, so that no matter what, we know that we're your children, surrounded by your grace. All this we ask, in through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.